Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Batman Nightcast, the podcast that chronicles Batman's comic book adventures since 1986 during the post-crisis on Infinite Earths era of DC Comics. I'm Chris Franklin. And I'm Ryan Daly. And this episode we will discuss Detective Comics number 570, the second issue from the creative team of Mike W. Barr, Alan Davis, and Paul Neary. And also the conclusion of the Catwoman-Joker storyline. And our listeners had a lot to say about part one, didn't they, Ryan? They did indeed. Uh, so much so that we didn't actually respond to all of it. We decided to save some of our comments about this storyline until this episode so that we could have kind of all of it in perspective. And so as not to spoil it for anybody who might be following the story along with us who wasn't necessarily reading the stories. Right. Yeah. So this, with this episode, we can uh, loosen our tongues on both Catwoman's role in this story and we can also shine the bat signal creator spotlight on Alan Davis himself because we were biting our tongues to talk about Alan Davis's art a little bit last time too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, in retrospect, we maybe should have done the Alan Davis one first, and then, <laughs> but uh, eh, it was fine. We'll do we'll do it this time. We'll, yeah. I'm excited for it. Well, Barr stays on longer, so that was our criteria. So. Right. Right. Uh, so, uh, without further ado, we will have Captain Gordon turn on the bat signal spotlight on Alan Davis. England native Alan Davis was born in 1956 and began making a name for himself as a fanzine artist in Britain in the late 1970s. Davis has cited many British artists such as Frank Bellamy, Frank Hampson, Jesus Blasco, Sid Jordan, and John M. Burns as influences on his artwork. He is also influenced by American comic illustrators more familiar to those of us who are stateside, including Neil Adams, Jim Aparo, Steve Ditko, Gil Kane, Barry Windsor Smith, Nestor Redondo, and John Bushima. Davis' first big break came in the early 80s, revamping the still fairly new Captain Britain character for Marvel's UK arm in The Mighty World of Marvel. Writer Alan Moore eventually joined Davis on the strip, and the two reunited not long after on the acclaimed Marvel Man series in Warrior Magazine. Davis also contributed to the famous British comic weekly 2000 AD. Davis, along with many other British writers and artists, including Moore, Brian Bolland, and Dave Gibbons, was headhunted by DC VP Dick Giordano and offered work stateside. Despite his success at Marvel UK, the U.S. Marvel office initially rejected his work, believe it or not. (laughs) DC tapped Davis to pencil and ink the Neil Posner-written Aquaman miniseries, but Dick Giordano felt he was too valuable to the company and pulled him off that project to take over the art chores on the then-hot Batman and the Outsiders title, while Jim Aparo geared up for the new Outsiders Baxter series. Davis regretted that decision then and now somewhat as he was always a fan of Aquaman. So there you go, Rob. (laughs) Davis began his run with Batman and the Outsiders number 22, June 1985, his first U.S. published work, and his first teaming with frequent and favorite collaborator Mike W. Barr. Barr and Davis' run on Batman and the Outsiders was well regarded, and he continued to draw the series after Batman left the team with issue number 33. Shortly thereafter, he and Barr were chosen to take over Detective Comics by incoming editor Denny O'Neill. It was during this transition period that Davis picked up his first U.S. Marvel work, drawing issues of New Mutants and X-Men, beginning a long association with Marvel's mutants. The Barr-Davis run was relatively short, due to what Davis has described as editorial negligence rather than true interference. Davis worked way ahead of his deadlines, and Giordano warned him that editors ignore creators who aren't problematic in one way or another. (laughs) Davis grew frustrated that editor Denny O'Neill never seemed to have time for him. The final straw came with the first chapter of Batman Year Two and Detective Number 575. The story centers around Batman using the gun that murdered his parents. 
Barr and Davis decided Batman needed a large gun and chose a Mauser, just like the one Walt Simonson had given his Manhunter character in the revamp a decade earlier. Davis drew the Mauser throughout the issue, then noticed Dave Mazzuchelli had drawn the gun as a 45 in a few panels in Batman number 404. He pointed it out to editorial, expecting someone to change Mazzuchelli's gun since it didn't feature heavily in that story arc. When the decision was made to change his art instead, Davis walked off the book, choosing not to make the changes or continue. Dick Giordano redrew the gun in every panel and on the cover. This allowed Chris Claremont to finally lure Davis over to Marvel and the X-Men office, where he drew more X-Men and New Mutants before he and Claremont launched Excalibur, combining X-Men characters with those from his Captain Britain strip. Davis drew the title for several years and after a brief period away returned as both artist and writer. Davis also created his own clandestine series at Marvel and over the past two and a half decades has spent most of his creative time there, both writing and drawing several X-Men related titles as well as contributing art to Avengers, Captain America, and the Fantastic Four, among others. Davis did return to DC off and on to provide covers for titles such as Legion of Superheroes, Flash, and JSA, but his interior work and writing were reserved for special projects such as the popular JLA The Nail and Another Nail, which allowed him to finally illustrate Aquaman as well as the entire DC universe, and we covered JLA The Nail on Supermates Episode 50, me and Cindy and you and Rob, so check that out if you haven't. Davis has returned to Batman solo stories on two occasions, working again with Barr. Batman Full Circle, a direct sequel to Batman Year Two, was published in 1991. Davis was promised he wouldn't have to work with Denny O'Neill, but found out he was still involved as Batman group editor. Once again, Davis turned in his artwork early, and the series was bumped up in production to replace a book that had fallen behind, making his chosen colorist and inker unavailable. Davis was less than happy with the coloring, despite Mark Farmer stepping in to replace original inker Paul Neary. Despite this second bad trip to Gotham, Davis reteamed with Barr and Farmer on the Batman black and white backup Last Call at McSurley's, featuring characters and locales from this very issue and published in Batman Gotham Knights number 25 in 2002. Over the years, Davis has most frequently teamed with those inkers, Paul Neary and Mark Farmer, and if you see Davis's art, chances are one of those who inked it. Davis seems to have escaped the curse of ageism that keeps many of his peers off of mainstream titles today, and I think we're all the better for it. So, Ryan, you got anything you want to add about Alan Davis? Uh, just sort of my personal reading history with him. Um, I don't think I've ever read any of his Outsiders work. I've only read a handful of Batman and the Outsiders st stories to begin with, um, which really kind of limits the DC output that I've been exposed to. Obviously, like reading The Nail and Another Nail, which makes me, I look at those and, and again wonder why he never did an on, like an in-continuity Justice League book. But I think... Probably the first time I would have seen his work was the Batman Year Two trade paperback, mm. and again that was he only did the first chapter. Um, eventually, I read Full Circle, but I, it wasn't when it first came out. It would have been years later, um, in the early '90s, uh, reading some of his X Men stuff and like back issues. I only read a handful of Excalibur books because I was never wild about the team. I really liked Nightcrawler. He's always been one of my favorite X-Men, so I tried to get into it because of him, but never really hung around. I've seen some of his work in the Avengers in the 2000s. He had a, a short run with uh, during the Kurt Busiek era after George Perez left. 
And yeah, just get like the back issues from this run of Detective Comics. And I will admit, I, I didn't mention this the last time, I never had all of the back issues from this run of Detective. Like, I never had the, the last issue that we covered. I had the one that we're covering today. But I didn't get all of his run on Detective until they released the Legends of the Dark Knight Alan Davis hardcover a couple of years ago. Uh, and that's where I was able to read it. I only had a, probably half uh, in in the original paperbacks. So yeah, like my exposure to him was really kind of like spotty, and certainly more of it was on the Marvel side with his uh, his connection to the X X books and everything. But uh, I always loved his work. You mentioned that one of his inspirations was Barry Windsor Smith, which I wouldn't have thought of. But just thinking about some of the Conan the Barbarian stuff that I've seen of Windsor Smith, it's yeah, maybe I can see that. Yeah, I think he's. It seemed like that in between the period where Windsor Smith was like. The Kirby clone and the Windsor Smith we have now, there was a period in there where there's a little bit, you can see a little bit of Alan Davis in there, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Uh, that, does that uh, Legends of the Dark Knight book, that probably collects everything he did for Batman other than the Outsider stuff, I bet, doesn't it? Yeah, and oddly enough, it's Legends of the Dark Knight by Alan Davis, Volume 1. And I'm like, there, you're never going to have a Volume 2 unless he starts doing more. <laughs> Because it's got his his run of detective up to the first part of year one. It's got full circle. It's got the black and white story. Oh, okay. Like, yeah, I was, I was like, um, <laughs> short of doing the outsider stuff, or unless he puts out more Batman content, you're not going to have a volume two. They're just going to take the panels from the nail that have Batman characters in it and just post. <laughs> Uh, my first exposure to him was actually uh, that Batman and the Outsiders number 22, the first issue he drew. And it, it, it starts out with a bang because it's the Outsiders beaming aboard the the wrecked Justice League satellite. And uh, Batman is just – he's seething with anger, which we'll get into how Davis is so great at, at drawing seething anger in his emotions. He's like you know teeth gritted one minute and then the next he's very melancholy as he looks at a – a portrait of the the original Justice League, and you know that's where he basically turns around and says, "You're my tool for fighting injustice now," you know, or something. Basically, and they're all like, "Uh, okay," but <laughs> Davis really sells it, you know, and it. So he made a really good first impression on yeah. me with that one. Yeah. We will talk about this more towards the end of the episode. We did get a comment from Diablo Frank talking about how. As much as Davis's work on Batman is so wonderful and so well regarded, he kind of made the point that maybe maybe he would have been more beneficial to Aquaman at this point in time if he had stayed with the mm. Aquaman series. Um, we can talk about that when we get to the limited uh, or the listener feedback section. I think maybe retroactively because I mean the the Aquaman miniseries, the artwork by Craig Hamilton is is beautiful, mm-hmm. but Craig Hamilton, despite his talent, he didn't go on to become kind of the superstar name artist that Alan Davis. Davis has become right. So if Aquaman was associated with early Alan Davis, it might've kind of helped him through the lean years, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Or at least we would have gotten a trade paperback. (laughs) <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, because we, yeah, geez, come on, DC, come on. You think with all the Aquaman, they're shipping Aquaman twice a month. They could put out a trade paperback of a, a mini series. It's like, bam, there, it's done. You know. Uh, anyway, well, I think that'll do it for our creator spotlight. We're going to take a quick promo break, and when we return, we're going to see what fate awaits Catwoman in Detective Comics number five seventy. Don't go away. Take the Earth's mightiest heroes, each an invincible champion of justice, and band them together to assemble the legendary Justice League of America. For 261 issues and three annuals, the DC Universe was defended from threats on Earth, 
and beyond by this legendary team, operating from a cave in Happy Harbor to a satellite orbiting 22,300 miles above the Earth to uh, Detroit. Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast, will follow the league through all their evolutions. Please join your host, Mike Peacock, as I seek to cover all of the issues of the classic pre-crisis Justice League of America series. Through the magic of the JLA transporter, each issue will be randomized, with special episodes covering a complete story arc if needed. Along with the issue coverage, we shall also look at what the then-current members of the Justice League were up to in solo appearances in other comics for the JLA cover month issue. So do not hesitate to activate your JLA signal device for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast on classicjla.podbean.com or by subscribing through iTunes. Okay, we're back, and we're going to talk, as we said, Detective Comics number 570. It was cover dated January 1987. According to Mike's Amazing World, it was on sale October 23rd, 1986, so right before Halloween. On the cover, Batman defends himself from Catwoman's Cat-09 tail attack. They both stand perilously on the speeding Joker-mobile with the clown prince of crime himself at the wheel, exhaust blowing behind the car. What do you think of this cover, Ryan? By a wide margin, this is the best cover that we have looked at on this podcast so far. I, I love this image so much. I've actually, I have used this image on my Facebook wallpaper image uh, at one point. I had to sort of rotate it and crop the image, so it was basically just Batman getting slapped by the cat of nine tails, and you couldn't really <laughs> see the Joker when it was in just like the banner on my Facebook wall. But uh, oh yeah, I love this so much. It's a great, great image. Yeah, I mean it's it's a fantastic cover. It's simple and dynamic. The characters are very large and popping off the page. I can imagine this would be a great cover to do like a 3D treatment on because mm-hmm. there's a lot of depth in it. I mean, you know, for a fairly simple image, I mean, because the Joker's up front and then Catwoman and the smoke, I mean, it would make a really sharp 3D image. I'd, I wish they'd recreated this in that Batman 3D book that John Byrne did that had the pinups in the back. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Who's the artist, the guy who does those like 3D images or 3D like collages of famous comic book covers? Oh, well, the guy that did the 3D treatment was Ray Zone, but the 
guy you're thinking of, I think, is Todd Rice. Yeah, he's Todd guy, Rice. He's a, yeah. he's a guy that Obsidian was named after. Oh, it's okay. spelled it's spelled different, but he was the character of Obsidian from Infinity Incorporated was named after him because he had I think he had done some covers for Roy Thomas like that. I never yeah. even knew that. Yeah, I read that in an article years ago in Amazing Heroes. That tells you how long ago it was. <laughs> yeah. But and one thing he did is he would create those. Uh, he collects Batman original art, <laughs> and he has like, uh, well, he has commissions really. I mean, he has he'll do those three D things for an artist and ask him to do a Batman for him. And in fact, the Batman, the famous Walt Simonson Batman. I think it's – is it Batman 366 where they're fighting on top of the building? It's the storyline where Joker's in South America and Jason shows up for the first time in the actual yeah. Robin costume. That cover was actually not done for DC. It was done for Rice by okay. Simonson. And somebody at DC saw it and said, we need that for a cover, and then they used it. So, yeah, that uh, that's totally off the topic into another era of Batman, but uh, – <laughs> But it's Batman, so it's okay. Right. But uh, this would, yeah. But this would make a great one of those Todd Rice 3D collages. He may have done it. We'll have to look and see if he did it somewhere. <laughs> uh, but my God, the the Catwoman on this is <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, humana humana. Lots of fi. <laughs> That's all I got to say. <laughs> and and you know, it's Batman and arguably his two most famous foes on a very well designed cover. So. This is about as iconic as you can get, I think. Yeah, Joker and Catwoman both debuted in Batman issue one, so. Yeah, and I think, you know, most people, if they think of, they think of the Joker first, but then, you know, Catwoman, I mean, she's, as awful as it was, she had her own movie, you know, so. <laughs> so, you can't argue that, uh, pretty popular character there. And there's such, like, there's such character in this, like, from the Joker. You know, he's not, like, the center of the action. He's not attacking Batman. He's he's just sort of watching, but, you know, he's he's having a blast doing this, just letting Batman be attacked by the woman he loves. And, oh, yeah, yeah, there's so much in this. And, and we will see more of this inside. Yes, actually, this scene does take place in the comics. So, yeah. there you go. <laughs> that doesn't happen very often, but it does here. Okay, well, you ready to jump inside? Absolutely. Okay, The Last Laugh, probably not the first or last time this title was used for a Joker story, uh, was written by Mike W. Barr, drawn by Alan Davis and Paul Neary. John Workman was the letterer, Adrian Roy was the colorist, and Denny O'Neill was the editor. The back alley bar named McSurley's is not a very inviting place. The one visible window is bricked up. A vandalized sign advertises bad food and warm beer. And the sole entrance is a large oaken door with a sliding metal viewplate. Yet McSurley's has visitors beyond its usual scummy clientele tonight. The bouncer answers the knock at the door only to have his head pulled forcibly through the peephole. Batman and Robin have come calling. McSurley feigns niceties with the Dark Knight, but Batman has only one request, the whereabouts of a man named Profile. Batman leaves a reluctant Robin with an acquaintance of his, a lady named Rhonda. Rhonda orders milk with Jason at the bar, and Batman makes his way to Profile's office, outwitting his thick-muscled and thicker-headed bodyguard, Moose, like he has seemingly done many times before. Batman interrupts Profile's phone call and demands to know the whereabouts of the Joker. The cordially posh Profile offers Batman a drink, but refuses his request. Such a breach of confidentiality would ruin his reputation as an information broker. Batman picks up Profile's glass and slyly threatens to leave his fingerprints behind at a crime scene, ensuring the slight and effeminate Profile would be sent to prison for the first time. Batman is sure he'd be very popular there. A visibly shaken Profile blurts out the location of the abandoned Jester Novelties factory. 
Batman retrieves Robin, who was happy to make a friend in Rhonda. When Batman hints at her profession of choice, the boy Wonder is quite taken aback. Meanwhile, at the Joker's hideout, Dr. Moon finishes his reverse CAT scan procedure on Catwoman, assuring the Joker that she will now see him as an ally. Despite Moon's warnings, an impatient Harlequin of hate demands the day Selina give up Batman's secret identity. She mumbles something softly in the Clown Prince's ear, and he cackles with demented glee. The laughter is heard by the approaching dynamic duo. Robin provides a distraction, leading the Joker's goons on a merry chase through the toy factory, keeping them off balance with bowling pins and giant-sized dice and pool balls. This allows Batman to make his customary dramatic entrance and confront the Joker. But the Cape Crusader forgot about Joker's sidekick, Straight Line, who karate attacks Batman, acting as a truly awful Asian stereotype. With Joker slipping away with Selina, Batman can't afford to fight his annoying opponent on his own terms and pulls wires from a nearby breaker box, electrifying him. The masked manhunter gives chase, leaping for the speeding Joker-mobile. The Joker manipulates the still-confused Catwoman, telling her Batman had abandoned her earlier to save Robin. A hissing feline fury leaps at the defensive Batman, who desperately tries to avoid hurting her. But Catwoman is not so forgiving and slashes the Dark Knight across the face. He falls off the car as his former friend and cackling foe disappear into the Gotham night. Batman confronts Moon and demands to know what he did and if the process can be reversed. Moon refuses, saying to do so would be like asking Da Vinci to paint over the Mona Lisa. When the police approach, Batman and Robin swing away, contemplating the Joker's next move. Batman deduces Joker is attempting to turn Catwoman back to her criminal ways and suspects he will point her toward a cat-related crime. He recalls a headline Selina was reading the day before, which read, Benson Harris still in cataleptic trance. Batman believes they will find both Catwoman and the Joker at the Benson's penthouse. As usual, Batman is correct, but even he didn't suspect the real reason why Joker and Catwoman are holding the Bensons hostage. Based on Selina's mumbled confession, Joker believes Benson and his son to be Batman and Robin. He trusses them up in a makeshift cat's cradle and has Straight Line install a motorized version of the cat's cradle on the wheelchair of the cataleptic Benson girl named Melissa. Joker wants Benson to admit he's Batman or he'll murder his daughter before him. Straight Line points out the very obvious clues that these two couldn't be Batman and Robin, but in his madness, the Joker refuses to hear any kind of reason. While he still wants his arch foe alive, he does wish to destroy his effectiveness and anonymity. Catwoman believes it to be a fitting punishment to take away his identity as a crime fighter, as he took away her life as a thief. But when Straight Line activates the crushing contraption attached to Melissa, Catwoman remembers that she is not a killer. She frees the girl's catatonic body with her claws, just as the real Batman and Robin drop in. The Joker is dumbfounded at first, but vows to kill everyone. Batman tries to reason with Catwoman while Robin frees the Bensons. When the Joker comes at him with an electrified joy buzzer, the boy Wonder accidentally kicks him into Melissa's wheelchair. Amazingly, the charge revives the girl from her coma. Joker and Catwoman attempt to escape on her catgut ladder, but Batman manages to grab the fleeing crime clown. Proving there's no honor among thieves, Catwoman cuts her ally and her enemy loose. Before making her dramatic exit, Catwoman tells Batman he'd be a lot of fun if he wasn't so straight. She leaps away while Batman still pleads with her to not give in to Moon's treatment. Finding this scenario delightfully hilarious, a laughing Joker mockingly asks if Batman had lost his kitten. An enraged Dark Knight backhands his hated foe and begins both a physical and verbal beatdown on the madman, threatening to end his years of laughing at all things decent. Only Robin's attempts at restraining his partner stop Batman from further pummeling the clown's now unconscious body. Batman confides in his partner that something always takes away every woman he loves. Robin reminds him that they may have lost Catwoman, but they did save the Bensons, and that's something. A smiling Batman responds, no Robin, that's everything. 
come on, chum, let's go home. So what do you think, Ryan? All right. There's a lot in this story. Um, I want to focus just on the beginning because the first six pages are what I call Rogue Cop on Take Your Kid to Work Day. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. All right. So Batman and Robin go to this bar, McSurley's, which is a great sort of little set. Although I have a thing and I never noticed it until this morning. Look at the first panel. It's a vertical panel of the outside of McSurley's. Okay. There's a sign above the door that says members only. There's a sign above that that says good food, cold beer, and it has been vandalized. It's been tagged bad food, warm beer. You would need a ladder of some height to actually vandalize that. Like, look how far (laughs) off the ground it is. But this is Gotham City where you've got cat burglars and, you know, you have Black Spider and Kite Man could have floated by and painted over it. You know what? Actually, that that actually makes it better, the idea that it would have been one of his costumed rogues, like an actual supervillain that actually did that. Yeah. Um, Okay. So once he goes inside, there is no reason for Batman to take Robin in the inside here, inside this bar, because he's not like training Robin to how to interrogate this uh, profile guy. You know, he's not showing him anything. He brings him inside the bar, leaves him at the bar full of what looks like 20, 30 hardened criminals, guys who would love to take a shot at this kid. And he leaves him sitting next to a girl that I imagine is probably a prostitute. Oh, yeah. And a prostitute that Batman is pretty familiar with, not in the way that that would suggest, but he knows her by name, and they have a sort of friendly relationship. He's, like, staying out of trouble, and they they have, like, banter and everything. And she's flirting with the kid, and he – Batman leaves her – leaves Robin there for that purpose – to have this girl flirt with him. It's it's like this really sort of crazy, crazy moment. Like later on when they're leaving, she says, Hey Batman, bring your kid bring Robin back here when he's older. He doesn't say, No, Rhonda, I'm sorry, I don't want my ward to lose his virginity to a woman of your stature or, or position. He just says, We'll see. Like, Batman, what are you doing? <laughs> like this, Like you're treating him like your son, but you're like you're not like what, what, what relationship is this? I've never seen this from Batman and Robin, uh, from Batman and Robin before. <laughs> like this scene, sort of couple, like because I I did read this, you know, when I was a little younger. But this scene, and when I was growing up, one of my favorite TV shows was Night Court. And Night Court oh, yeah. also had a very, like, considering the fact that there were always prostitutes and hookers coming into the court, Judge Stone always had a very friendly sort of relationship with them, where it was never judgmental. And it was kind of funny, because in a lot of media, you know, just like the word hooker was a bad thing. It was an insult and everything. But I had these two exposures, the show Night Court, that always treated these women with dignity and respect. And then this issue of Detective Comics, where Batman knows this woman and he trusts Robin with her and trusts them together that he's not going to be attacked by these people and everything. And it's, it's like there was just this weird kind of connection where I was like, yeah, prostitutes, they're, they're, they're not bad. I, we don't have to judge them for their way of life and everything. And it's, it's just this bizarre kind of confluence of, of impressions going on in my head. And all I could think of is 
Batman is like this rogue cop from all the dirty like 80s and, and 90s movies who's just bringing his kid to work, but leaves him outside to just witness all the bad, bad things while he goes and does an even worse thing by threatening this guy. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I, I love these opening six pages, but it's so weird. Again, like not like any Batman and Robin I've ever seen before or since. Well, you know, you do make a good point. I hadn't really thought of that aspect of it. I guess I just kind of thought of this is part of the job, you yeah, know. And, and yeah. on the flip side, we've said that this run has, uh, you know, uh, its elements that are similar to the 60s Batman TV show. In the very first episode of the Batman TV show, Robin stays out in the Batmobile while Batman goes in the into the What a Way to Go Go, mm-hmm. uh, you know, discotheque bar. And, uh, you know, of course, Batman orders an orange juice. Uh, but Robin has to stay outside because he's underage. And, you know, Burt Ward's Robin was at least 15 because during the show he gets his driver's license. So, uh, you know, Jason here is maybe 13. So he's quite a bit younger than than, uh, Dick was. So that's a good – I hadn't thought about that point. But, you know, that's a good point on Night Court too because if I remember right, there was a particular prostitute character that returned several times. It was kind of a love interest for Harry. Yeah, she fell in love with him and like like was like – when he kind of said, I'm sorry, this isn't going to work, she, I don't know if she, like, threatened to kill herself or did something, but yeah, no, yeah, you were definitely right, yeah. Yeah, it seems like she may have overdosed or something. Yeah, I can't yeah. There's, there's something like it in the I haven't seen Night Court in years, but I, lo- I loved it, too. I watched the heck. Probably didn't need to be watching it when I watched it. I was too young to be watching it, honestly. <laughs> Me, too. But I, I watched the heck out of that show. It was fantastic, but it's, uh, yeah. can you imagine Night Court in Gotham City? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Especially after seeing the Lego movie with all the Lego Batman movie with all the, you know, the Z-list villains. If like, yes. you know, they, you know, Dan Fielding was trying to defend uh, <laughs> uh, Zebra Man or prosecute Zebra Man or whatever, you know, I mean, it's. <laughs> oh, he would have a field day with Magpie and Harley and Catwoman. Yeah. Like his, yeah oh. <laughs> lecherous self. Oh, well, yeah. Put a female in front of him. It writes itself. Somebody, they sh- some somewhere along the lines, the guys that did like Batman Brave and the Bold. They, they should have got because uh, that you know that that series tended to um, go to comedy a little bit. They should have done a skit where they were in court at night. You know, it was a night court, and they got you know uh, Harry and yeah. and uh, John uh, Larroquette and stuff to come back. I mean, Richard Mall was on the Warner Brothers payroll as Two Face and, yep. and made series, so that would have been great <laughs> to have a crossover. <laughs> uh, but we digress. Uh, the, the McSurleys is. Wow, that that is a it's it's an interesting place. I mean, that's for sure. I, the second, I love the page two uh, splash. Uh, for, okay, first of all, my eye instantly goes to the woman sitting on top of the uh, Star Invaders arcade. She's got a snake covering her breasts because yes. nothing else is. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a guy in a chicken outfit. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and then I love, like, even before he gets to profile, so he's walking down the hallway to the back room, you got this giant, this bodyguard named Moose, with this crazy, like, pompadour haircut or something. <laughs> it says, Moose, my shoelace is untied, and Moose is like, no, you, that, that trick worked last time, but I don't have shoelaces, you're not going to fool me. And Batman, this is my favorite part, Batman's like, ah, I suppose you're right, Moose, my shoelace is untied. And the guy's like, oh, really? Is it? And he looks down, and Batman clocks him. Yeah. This is Batman as Bugs Bunny. Yes. Uh, it's Or, if you prefer, it's Batman as Sheriff Bart, and Moose is Mongo yeah. from Blazing Saddles. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
You, Moose, Moose say, Batman, only man who ever defeated uh, Moose. He have deep feeling for him. And Robin says, oh, I think he's taking a shine to you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> moose probably got his name by punching a moose. <laughs> probably so. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, I love it when creators, like, give us something in a city. Like, they, they give the city identity. They say, mm-hmm. okay, in Gotham City, there's this one place. Yeah. That, and, and, I mean, McSurley's is that place. You know, I mean, it's it, – I wish other creators had kind of picked up on it. I don't think anybody else did, which is unfortunate. But, you know, some other creator would probably come in and blow it up and kill everybody in it because that's what creators like to do to other people's right. creations. I don't know why, but they feel the need to. Uh, so Frank yeah, Miller I mean, did that with Daredevil, and it's kind of funny that as Frank Miller will be starting year one in the next issue that we cover, um, mm-hmm. but his Daredevil run had that like that established bar that they always went back to. Yeah, um, and, and they it, picked that up on the TV show. Yeah, so yeah. that's. Uh, I mean, it just it just makes it everything feel more real. And I mean, I do think it's hilarious, though. And we'll we'll get into Davis's art uh, later on. But the giant smile Batman has on his face when he sees Rhonda. I mean, it's <laughs> I mean, it's almost maybe a little too much. If I if I have one criticism for Davis, he seems a little too happy to see Rhonda. If you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there, yeah there, there are stories that we have not been told. <laughs> yeah. I love Robin's the, – the guy's like, what do you want? We're out of bird seed. And Robin's <laughs> like, milk. Milk and, and the defiant look on his face as he, he has to pull himself on the giant bar stool and he's like, milk. You know, just <laughs> – you can just hear. Yeah, I know. I know this is Jason and not Dick, but you can hear Burt Ward kind of going milk. You know, it's yeah, just, yeah. It just works. Yeah. Oh, and the girl sitting on the video game. Mm-hmm. For years, I kind of thought, okay, is she a real person or is that part of the video game? Is that part of the? It's like a sculpture on top of the pinball machine or the video game. But in the uh, last call at McSurley's Batman Black and White story, she's in there dancing with the snake. Yeah, so yeah. she is a real character. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but we can't talk about McSurley's without talking about Michael Bailey's favorite part of this story. I know it is. I know. <laughs> Where Batman threatens prison rape to his informant. <laughs> <laughs> he goes to see Profile and he threatens to send him away by like planting his fingerprints, planting evidence on him to get him thrown in jail. This has ever been inside Profile? You'd be real popular up there, Profile, if you catch my drift. Yeah. And yeah, this grin on his face as the other guy is like shaking. Yeah. He gives he's up biting, the information. He's biting his lip. I mean, it's it's awesome. It's it's it. Uh, <laughs> How did this get it away? How did they get away with this in a code-approved book? I just, <laughs> I don't understand. I mean, it's the look on. I don't know if Batman's ever looked more sinister than when he's smiling there at, and shattering the glass with his two fingers. Which that's amazing that Batman can do that. I mean, imagine trying to stick your fingers down a wine glass and then breaking it with your two fingers. <laughs> I mean, that's a feat of strength right there. You know, so. What kills me is if you think about it, he says, tell me what you know about the robbery at the Croft Diamond Exchange. And I was like, the Croft Diamond? There hasn't been any robbery of the Croft Diamond Exchange. Not yet. So is Batman going to rob the Croft Diamond Exchange? Or does he just know it's going to happen? You know, that's a good question. Like, because I thought the implication was that he was going to rob it just to plant the evidence there to frame that guy. Now, he wasn't going to go ahead with that threat. The whole, as long as Profile doesn't understand that Batman wouldn't actually rob and steal the money and wouldn't need that. But either way, it's it's 
I, I, I think the implication was that he would rob it and leave the evidence there. Right. You know, I think this whole scene goes to show that even though that this this run has that aura of fun and adventure, like the old Batman stories, a, a case can be made that in its own way, it's just as dark and gritty as some of the uh, elements from the Max Allen Collins stories we've been reading. It's got a gritty element to it the, underneath underneath the uh, the colorful exterior, you know. So. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. It's... The art, though, doesn't seem like it would be. It seems like such the art is so lovingly, like joy, like loud and vibrant that it, it seems like this would be fitting for a much more of a silver or bronze age type of story. But yet, there's there's this stuff. In it. <laughs> so I want to ask you this: When Batman says he basically hints to Robin that that Rhonda's a prostitute, mm-hmm. and Robin's like, "You mean she's a?" And he says, "She's a lady, Robin, just like Selena." Do you think that that was Barr knowing what Miller was going to do with Selena, or is that just a coincidence? Um, I never thought about that. I that that isn't how I've ever read it. Um, I, and I don't think okay. he's he's putting the parallel that Catwoman or that Selena is a prostitute because I think he's actually in this sense he's he's not trying to bring Selena down. I think he's elevating Rhonda because Robin was about to say, but you mean she's a hooker or a call girl or a prostitute or something like that? Batman cuts him off and says, no, she's a lady, trying to give her that dignity and give her that respect. And then kind of right. mentions just like Selena is. and it, like, it's, a, it's a way of segueing to what is on his mind and the reason he's doing this and so that we can transition to the scene with, with Catwoman. So, no, I don't think he was drawing attention to the fact that Miller was going to change Catwoman's backstory. It's possible, but that's not the way I've ever read it. Well, I just kind of wondered because there we'll get to it. But in the from the Den column, uh, O'Neill does hint that the revelations about Catwoman will be quite shocking mm-hmm. in Batman Year One. But we also have to go by what Davis has said that they were working way ahead, and that was why he felt like they were getting they're basically getting neglected. Right. Uh, so this may have been in the can long before it was known what how Miller was rewriting Catwoman's backstory. So I, I don't know. It just it just popped in my head because honestly, you know, in this continuity, at one point they shared a profession. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so no, that's true. I mean, if you want to go by that, later on they try to soften that she really wasn't doing that. She was just acting like she was doing that or something. You know, which okay, whatever. But uh, I, I'll, another question: We get to the Joker scene where where he's you know they fried Selena one more time. Yep. The last time, and then he asked her what Batman's secret identity is. And I have always kind of thought it looks like instead of saying Robert Benson or whatever she says, it looks like she says Robert Redford. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It, it like, looks like yeah. The, the the lettering is super small and kind of like blurry and like a little bit looser, and so you're not supposed to be able to read it entirely. But if you really squint and scrutinize it, that's the way it looks. It looks like who was the letterist? Was it Workman? Was it John Workman? Or yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I think he wrote Robert Redford. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like you know, with maybe a couple extra letters in there and just like Robert, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it, you know, which. That's funny because, you know, Robert Redford was obviously one of the big Hollywood stars of the <laughs> time, you know, and, you know, it's probably one of the first people that Catwoman would think of. But it, in a way, it's weird because how does that actually work within the story? Because 
she really needs to say Robert Benson for, <laughs> for <laughs> right. Batman for Bat for Joker to say, oh, it's Benson, he's Batman, and then for Batman to say she was looking at this newspaper article, you know, so to get everything to come together. But it, I even took my phone and like zoomed in, <laughs> like over top the, the balloon, <laughs> and it sure looks like it's Robert Redford to me, and it kind of always has. So. Yeah, that's how I read it. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm glad I'm not the only one. I, I felt like, okay, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just thinking this. I don't know if that was in the script, or I'm betting that was probably just Workman just writing in his own little joke. Because you're right, it doesn't make sense in the context of the story. Like, the Joker's reacting like he's laughing at that, but she would need to give the other name later on, give right. a different scene or something. So it kind of throws off the actual like story. So I, I'm betting that was... Like, the script may have called for just mumbling or something that doesn't, like, look like a full name or something, and John Workman, like, wrote that in himself, or just designed the letters to look like that, just as a, as a joke himself. Yeah, I don't even know if his first name's Robert. I don't know if they ever say what his first name is. I can't recall, but I just I assumed it was Robert based on, you know, mm-hmm. she had to get something right, so... <laughs> I think it's funny, especially based on your observation about Batman taking Robin into this the most dangerous bar in Gotham City, that he asks he, you know, takes the time to say, Now now chum, are you sure that you wanna go up against the Joker's men? That could be very dangerous, you know. You know, and he he does that, but you know, he just walks into this bar with <laughs> But it, it does show that this Batman, despite the child endangerment you've now pointed out to me, he is uh, more openly caring than most versions we'll see moving on. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he's very demonstrative uh, to as, as demonstrative as Batman's going to get in a, in a way right. to Robin that, you know, it's like now it puts his hand on his shoulder. Now, you don't have to do this now, you know, and, you know, right. and the scenes with Robin, this our, our listeners pointed out that I think it was David A. Scudieres, which I, I hate to give him any credit but he did point out <laughs> just kidding Dave. but you know rob the way they portray robin really was one of the best things about this run and, and i completely agree because uh, you know they do sell the young energetic bouncing off the walls robin i mean these goons of the jokers they can't keep up with him he's making right. these awful puns some of them are actually pretty funny but some of them are horrible <laughs> right. and i mean you know when he says you're you know he says that about the guy's mother and he said how do you know about my mother <laughs> 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 that was a good joke. I liked it. Yeah. And no. I mean, you know, the giant pool balls and it's very Bill Finger, you know. And yeah. But I like it because in the Batman issues we've covered, Robin hasn't had much to do, uh, certainly not in the two issues that Collins wrote so far. And in the last one, Robin was more of a presence in the previous detective issue, but he also got captured by the, when Straight Line shot the like, Chinese finger trap thing and ended up like passing out and Batman had to rescue him. So it's nice to see this scene where Robin actually acquits himself very well and actually like, kicks the crap out of these two goons. Um, yeah. He's doing it in like this very fun, energetic, exciteful, like, talkative manner. He does present a great contrast for Batman because Batman doesn't have to talk a lot. Batman is using the shadows, whereas Robin is bouncing off the walls. He's like the Spider-Man more of a type of character where he's giving mm-hmm. like, the smart aleck quips. And yeah, the way Davis does it and, and Neary and the two of them the art for this it's it's a better robin than i i think we hardly ever see right if we kept this robin i don't think rob kelly would have been dialing that particular number <laughs> in 1988 you know <laughs> murderer yeah 
when we get inside, you know, with Batman, you know, he confronts the Joker. And again, Straight Line is changing his outfits again because he's got the nurse's outfit on in the first few panels. And then he shows up in his gi and his blue <laughs> bandana and karate kicks Batman with some really bad Asian stereotype dialogue. Oh, I yes. mean, it's, and I don't know whether it was meant to be bad then, you know, so, but it's like, it seems worse now, you know, yeah. so. I don't know how to – it's not nothing to get totally hung up on. I mean, you know, it's – the comedy shows of the time would have done the same thing. If a guy showed up for a karate skit, he would have been replacing his L's and R's and, you know, so – it's just it's just the comedy of the time, I guess. But yeah, it's you know it's well it's like a Christmas story. You know, it was a few years before this, and you know the deck the hall song. You know, <laughs> right. so but couldn't all of that voltage have killed Straight Line? <laughs> I I thought it probably would have. Yes. Yeah, um, I don't know if Batman cared. He was yeah. he was trying to get to Catwoman. You know, yeah. collateral damage. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that you know I, I, I'm sure he would have told Robin he's like I didn't have to kill Straight Line. I just chose not to save him from the <laughs> electricity that I shocked him with. Yeah. <laughs> what happened, Batman? Well, um, these wires came loose from the wall, and he just happened to run into. Them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Joker Mobile, or I'm calling it the Joker Mobile. They never call it that. Right. But I, I'm going to call it that. It almost seems like it might be like a hover car. It does, yeah. Like I, can't, I couldn't decide if it had wheels or if it just was like kind of floating off the ground a little bit. So yeah, because like the back, like it does look like it's sort of like a. Um, can't even think of like the word to describe, but it looks like it's sort of like a, a jet, sort of like a propeller yeah yeah thing. yeah a, yeah vtol like a vertical takeoff landing type of thing it does seem to be what it what it's looked like yeah there's actually like in the on page 13 like the silent page where they're fighting or whatever there are no tires oh yeah you're right so it is like a hover car type yeah, thing yeah. that's cool it's actually really similar to a i mean a straight up flight you're right there are no tires there uh it's almost like a little it's like the the fantastic car like yeah, yeah. on the street or something uh, there's a, a flying Joker vehicle that was used on the cover and inside Batman number 136 from December 1960, which incidentally is probably the earliest issue of Batman I own. It's beat to hell, but I do have a copy of that. And Davis would actually adapt that image in a flashback in Batman Full Circle. Huh, so okay. he was apparently very fond of this kind of semi-flying or straight-up flying Joker vehicle so, that looks like his face. So. <laughs> So there you go. Does somebody make a toy of this? Come on, you know. Superpowers should have made, you know, this Joker mobile. <laughs> <laughs> I think it Joker knows how to man the he knows how to turn the screws on Batman, you know, when he tells Catwoman, you know, he left you behind to save Robin. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I love this this two page spread of like uh twelve and thirteen. The fact that they would even and I don't I don't remember how early they were doing like sort of like silent pages or whatever like that, but just letting the uh, the art take over. But it's great when Barr just like gets out of the way and lets Davis do his thing and shows this fight between Batman and Catwoman on the back of the car as they're whizzing in. She tries to scratch him. He dodges. She starts to fall over. He saves her, pulls her off, pulls her from the ledge before she can fall, and she scratches him and knocks him off. And they just you know float off with the Joker cackling behind them, and it's. 
Oh, just great pages. I love this so much. And, and yeah, that's that's when Bard just like, you know what, Davis is the star of the show right now. I'm going to let him do his thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's beautifully orchestrated. I mean, you can just see it in a film or an animated episode. I mean, it's yeah. very cinematic. Yeah, it, you know, he they could have filled it with word balloons like Selena don't, you know, and then right. her hissing or something. But it's much more powerful if they just, you know, like you said, he just gets out of the way, the, the, the text, the lettering, the script. And yeah, it's really sharp. Right. You can hear like music pump, like playing and everything. And then like there's a there's a score to that scene. It's just Batman when he confronts Dr. Moon, he's got a super intense look on his face. <laughs> and uh, it looks like, you know, if the police hadn't, you know, pulled up when they did, uh, you know, Dr. Moon might have got the treatment the Joker gets at the end of the story. Yep. <laughs> and we'll get an even more intense Batman at stories in. But, yeah. It's uh, I think it's, you know, funny moons like I, I want to talk to my embassy, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like we said, Dr. Moon, actually, he will resurface again, you know, in, in other stories. So it's uh, he, I haven't seen, you know, I don't know what's happened to him and who knows in modern continuity such as it is what happened to him. But, you know, he was a a utility, you know, a utility villain. He was a, a Professor Milo type or, yeah, you know, just yeah. random mad scientist to pull in, you know. Yeah. Page 15, when we get to the Benson's home, man, the Joker is skinny. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Seriously, that is really, really skinny, dude. Somebody pointed out he looked like Jack Skellington. That was me, I, yeah, yeah. Was it you? Okay, yeah, okay. I said, I, said, I said, I'm pretty sure Jack Skellington is the corpse of the Joker from this era. <laughs> Zero is one of the hyenas. He's not really a dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, he's he's ridiculously skinny, but... On the next page, on page 16, I mean, you know, you can rip the Joker's face off. You can have it half-burned, modern creators. But I don't think you'll ever display the Joker's madness much better than the last page of panel 16. Maybe the reveal scene in The Killing Joke where Joker comes out of the rain and, you know, the famous where he's got his hands on his head through his hair. That and this one are like, you know, I mean, the look in his eyes is just, holy cow, this guy is batshit crazy. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. (laughs) Wow. So what what do we think about the Benson deal with with the cataleptic daughter and all that? That was really forced. <laughs> like, yeah. I like the idea that Selina wouldn't give away, like, Batman's identity. I'm not sure how it plays out and, like, the ambiguity of, well, did she really remember and choose not to betray him? Did she completely forgot? Really, like, the first thing she thinks of is the word cataleptic coma because she's obsessed with cats? Like, no, that's kind of stupid. Um, (laughs) but whatever we get to the scene and i I do like the fact that in the scene like the joker is like laughing and he's so giddy about like finally catching batman and robin he's gonna expose a secret and of all things like straight line is like joker something about this doesn't make sense i really don't think this guy is batman (laughs) the joke that that straight line is sort of the one who's like "Mm, let's stop and think about this for a minute he looks really scared (laughs) They were here already. Yeah, you know? they were already here when we got here. Sleeping. I mean, he doesn't have the scratch on his face. You know, I mean, it's yeah. I mean, straight line is like the voice of reason, but the Joker just will not hear it at all. I mean, it's 
it's actually, you know, I mean, it makes sense. The Joker, it shows that the Joker, despite his ability to be, you know, be very cunning and plan things, when he's deep in the plaque towel of his madness, he, you know, there ain't no coming back. So, it, yeah, this part of the Joker feels more like the 66 Cesar Romero a bit. In particular, yeah. in the next page, when the real McCoy Batman and Robin show up, he does, like, there's the whole panel with him looking back and forth from one set of, from one pair to the other guys, to the Bensons, and back and forth. He's like, but you, but they, but I, that, that, that is a comic beat because the audience loves a slow learner. But right. it's like, really, dude, kind of pick up the pace. Yeah, obviously you were fooled. And a different version of the Joker would not have delayed that long and taken that long to catch up to the fact that he would he had been lied to. Right, um, and yeah, I can, I can just hear, you know, when Romero go into, you know, his, his uh, you know, I can't believe this is happening, and then he'll get his, his bah, you know, right, he'll, right. You know his, his mustache will get all droopy, and, you know, uh, I, can, I can definitely see that, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I like that Robin gets a couple of good kicks on the Joker. <laughs> yeah, he's taking. I mean, Jason. Here's Jason Todd yeah. kicking the Joker's butt. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure the Joker won't hold a grudge. No, he won't hold a grudge or a crowbar. <laughs> <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> Too so- sorry, sorry. Uh, uh, but yeah, but Robin does kick the Joker into a girl in a wheelchair, and the Joker's <laughs> joy buzzer thing shocks her out of her coma again. I, I am not a doctor. <laughs> but that seems a little suspicious to me. But regardless, like that, because if we're going with okay, electricity that could have just as easily killed her. In which case, like Batman, Robin, you need to go back to the Batcave and do some more training when it comes to electricity and human bodies, because yeah. <laughs> most of the time it doesn't work this way. Right. I mean, you know, they they have Batman has fought the electrocutioner before. You think he would know? <laughs> you know, it's like, the the Benson thing. Really, I mean. It's very much of the an old Batman story where there was always, you know, this character. There was a there was a sob story angle, you know, this oh, this poor girl is is in a cataleptic trance. And then, you know, that involves the Catwoman. And then, you know, and I, and I don't think there would have been a violent shocking of her back in the Silver Age. But, you know, something would have happened to, you know, it's kind of like in the Bizarro, the first Bizarro story where that John Byrne adapted where. You know, there's the blind girl, but when Bizarro goes booms, all of a sudden she can see. You know, it's 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 that type of thing. You know, that type of trope. Uh, but yeah, the <laughs> you think well, you think they would have tried some kind of shock treatment on her if they thought that would work, but maybe they were afraid to, and it just so happened that the Joker, yeah. the Joker's joy buzzer revived her. But I, I do think you know uh, when he says he's contributing to a happy ending, it's he knows it's time to get out. You know, he's bombing so. <laughs> <laughs> So you know, they, at least the Joker, you know, had a little funny gag at the expense of the uh, the, the slightly sappy uh, aspect of it, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> getting to like the final little situation, like I wasn't crazy about Catwoman saying "Hurry up, Joker!" Like I didn't really buy that they would be partners. Um, hmm. Like it, it still seemed like if she went back to her old ways and she kind of forgot about her love of Batman and everything, it seemed like they were. They were just too different. Like she went there. Like even when she went there, she's like, "Joker, I'm not a killer. I'm not. I'm not like you." So right. it kind of seemed like she would have taken the opportunity to get out of there, but she would have left his ass, uh, yeah. which she ends up doing anyway. When Batman yeah. grabs a hold of him, she like slices the ladder, and she's like, "Okay, screw both of you. I'm out of here." But just the fact that she tried to like wait for the Joker and everything, I was like, "Yeah, you're both criminals now, but 
you're not going to be partners. I don't see that happening in the future. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, it's it probably would have made more sense for her to shoot the ladder for herself and the Joker to just scramble up behind her. Right. And she's like, get off, you know, and right, Batman, right. you know, and then she cuts it loose or, yeah, I agree with that. I will say that it looks like it's in silhouette, so it's hard to tell, but there's a little explosion thing as she looks like she launches her cat gut ladder from something that looks similar to what we'll later get as Batman's grapple gun. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And he doesn't have that yet. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of neat, you know. Um, he's, you know, Frank Miller used the uh, like the harpoon gun with the wire on it in uh, in the Dark Knight, right. but he didn't have a grapple gun like michael keaton or the animated series would popularize uh so kind of interesting there but then of course we get uh when when catwoman you know says you'd be so fun if you weren't so straight that's that's julie newmar mm-hmm. i mean that how many times did she say something like that to adam west you know yeah uh so, so that was definitely a i think a nod to that and you know and he's still pleading with her and then the uh joker makes the dumb mistake of <laughs> of laughing about this <laughs> And Batman <laughs> pimp slaps his ass. I mean, there ain't no two ways about it. <laughs> and then the last page, we go through a lot in seven panels. Yes, we Especially do. The first three panels are just Batman beating the holy hell out of the Joker, screaming yes. at him, losing his mind. The fourth panel... Robin is, like, physically climbing on Batman's back, trying to hold his arm back, saying, stop, you'll kill him. And Batman's like, he took her away from me. Everything I love is taken away from me. It's like, Jesus, Batman, calm down. Yeah. This is is really intense. And then the last three panels, it's like, okay, think about the family that we just saved. And snap of the fingers, Batman is smiling again. He's like, yeah. oh yeah, we did a good thing. That's good. Let's get out of here. And the last panel is them like swinging away, like their silhouettes against the moon, and it's like so rushed. I was like, wait, wait, wait. We need another. Did you just leave the Joker and Straight Man in the apartment with the in the penthouse with this family? Did you wait till the cops showed up? <laughs> That's a good point. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> Batman just threw the Joker's body out of eight story window and just <laughs> whoops he slipped. You know. <laughs> I didn't kill him. I uh, you just know, didn't save him from the ground that rushed up to meet him. Right. I think you know, the the fact that Robin is is literally pulling Batman back from the ledge, that's Robin's role. I right, mean that right. from the very beginning that was Robin. They wanted Robin in the book to get Batman somebody to talk to to kind of tone the stories down because DC was making a decision to, you know, not have their stories be so violent. Yep. And, you know, we did it. So, so here, Robin, literally uh, Davis shows that Robin's actual role in, in the Batman canon as he's literally pulling Batman back from beating the Joker to right. death. Right. So, so you, <laughs> you are not a killer. You are not going to behave this way. You're better than this. And yeah, yes. no, you're right. It's, it's, they perfectly like physically depict the sort of symbolic role that the character is supposed to have. Yeah, that was a good point. Yeah. Well, one thing I have to point out: the ending of this story is practically verbatim the same closing dialogue Barr used in Batman Annual Number Eight. In that one, Batman's final solution for defeating Rachel Ghoul, which was essentially murdering him. Uh, has driven a wedge between him and Talia, despite the fact that she was aiding him throughout this story against her father. So he lost another love in that case. And Robin, you know, says, yeah, you may have lost a girl, but you saved the city. Doesn't that, you know, doesn't that mean anything? He's like, that's everything, chum. Let's go home. You know, I mean, it's it's almost the exact same dialogue. 
so did Barr reuse this to tie back to that instance of Batman's mission costing him a love that he had? Or did he just really like the sound of this and want to use it again? So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but if it's he plagiarized himself, so it doesn't, you know, he's completely OK with doing that. So that that. <laughs> We will not fault him for that. It's a great ending, and it worked then, and it works now. So, yeah. uh, but I always, I just, I, as soon as I read this, even when I was a kid, I'm like, wait a minute, I because that was a great ending to that story, mm-hmm. and it was a mm-hmm. really nice Trevor Von Eden panel of them. They were actually swinging toward us instead of away, uh, as they said, "Let's go home." But uh, yeah, we keep talking about that annual. We just need to. We need to figure out some way to cover that at some point. <laughs> uh, I think we will. We'll figure out some way. We'll make an excuse. Okay. <laughs> we don't need. We don't need a good excuse. We'll just make something. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, okay. So the big question and something that we did not really discuss the last time around, but it is like the whole revelation of what happens to Catwoman in this story. This two-part story arc was essentially used as a way of breaking them up, of taking. Selena out of Bruce's life so that they are not lovers anymore, and in fact, it repositions her as a criminal again. She's not like an anti-hero. She's not a vigilante like him. She's a criminal again. She's on the other side of the law, and she doesn't know who he is. I mean, it's not a retcon because there is an in-story reason for it, but they've basically just repositioned her to be his enemy again. Mm-hmm. How do we feel about this? Yeah, you know, it's 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 really it's really interesting because my whole I think it's a great story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you. I think now you can look at it as you know. I think now we're more aware of of the way females are portrayed in in media, and and we can say, okay, they took the female character and brainwashed her, the strong female character and brainwashed her back into a villain. That's a component of it that we're looking at through, I think, more modern eyes right. than what was really thought of then. But the real the real thing that gets me is about when this story happened. If this happened a year or two earlier, then I could say, well, they're they're wanting to reset the board with Catwoman because they they want her back to being the the enemy and everything. But they didn't really need to do this here. This is they have the crisis for this. <laughs> they can, <laughs> They can just say that Catwoman. They can just you know have her show up and be an enemy, or or maybe even have a couple hints that okay maybe she was kind of working with him, but you know because he spurned her and didn't completely accept her as a partner. Now she's gone rogue again. Or they could just say okay that stuff never happened. Or they can just you know nonchalantly not say it didn't happen, but just ignore it. Right. This as much as I love this story and I think it's great. The the whole thing about turning Catwoman evil, quote unquote, again or a villain again, is as or Denny Neal, Denny O'Neill says, revillainizing Catwoman in the from the Den column. It's kind of unnecessary. <laughs> so, what do you think about it? I'm of two minds. Um, like you said, I like the story. It's a great little two part story. Although I like it a lot more for the art than the story itself. Mm. Um, and I do like Mike Barr as a writer, and there's nothing there's nothing wrong about this story, but I just think it's one of those cases where the art really outshines the story. But I do prefer Catwoman as a criminal, and it's one of those things where I don't 
I don't want her to her and Batman to be lovers or or like committed to each other. I like this the idea that they always have this thing between them, which is that he can't give her a break. He wants to, and he'll be tempted to, but it's sort of, and again, it comes back to, I always think of, like, my default position on these things as sort of like Batman the Animated Series. But at mm-hmm. the end of The Cat and the Claw, he puts the handcuffs on her, and he's like, mm-hmm. this, is the, this is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. But my one commitment, the thing that I am most monogamous to, is the law and justice to that degree. So I think... I, I do like her as, and she's not she's not a murderer like the Joker. She's not somebody who's out to conquer the world, but she steals for money or for revenge or for other things like that. And I like the fact that she is on the other side of the law. Now she can be used for team ups on occasion. She doesn't have to be the rogue only. I, I think there is room to tell stories about her serving almost as an anti-hero capacity, but I don't want it to get to the point where it was in Earth 2 where they would get married and have a kid. Even though I like those stories and I like what the Huntress was in Earth 2, but I like that as a parallel universe, not necessarily the Mm. main continuity. Um, I, I think in the main world, Batman and Catwoman aren't going to get married. That's just not in the cards for them. Um, right. And he really shouldn't have sex with her on a rooftop. Um, <laughs> because eventually he does still have to put her in handcuffs if she's going to go on like that. And sleeping it's with according her. According to what then, they're into. Yeah, you know, sleeping they, with her and then arresting her. Come on, man. Well, he might put her in handcuffs during, you know. So I, I don't know what they're into. That's their business, you he, know. It's, he learned that trick from Rhonda at McSurley's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I tend to agree with you. I think you know I kind of default to uh, the animated series to a point too, and and say you know I liked when Catwoman you know when she would you know aid Batman here and there like in you know um, almost got him or something like yeah, that or yeah. come to her aid and you know and, and it's uh, I, I like that you know she she wouldn't let anybody else kill Batman. She didn't want to see him get killed. Right. Uh, but you know it, you know so I I like I like that aspect of her and I kind of I think they could have. It does give Batman a good reason to give the Joker a beatdown, and it actually, you know, makes the Joker. This is this is. I mean, we think this. Oh man, the Joker went out of his way to make Catwoman, you know, go go bad again. He, you know, he he basically brainwashed her into being a villain again. It's like, wow, could the Joker get any worse? <laughs> Just I, wait. I am perfectly fine with the idea that they do love each other, and that he is in. And rightfully attracted to her and and cares more about her than perhaps any woman he's ever known um, and and would be tempted to let her go uh, and that she tempts him. She shows him a part of himself that he doesn't want to admit is there uh, and that she really loves him in that that way. But they're star-crossed, you know, however much they love each other, it's not going to end well. Right. Uh, So that's kind of, yeah. But like in the very first Catwoman story, you know, she gets away and Batman actually gets in front of Robin so he can't like go after her and and you know he's he's basically uh, being becoming an obstacle for <laughs> Robin's trying to leap after her out of a boat and she, right. and Batman just keeps oh sorry you know getting in his way because he doesn't want he wants to give her a head start basically you know right, right. which I don't mind that you know but yeah I agree I I think uh 
and and I and I think that you know I think they were right to get Catwoman back to that position. I think I think like you said, they're not going to get married. They're not going to they're not going to let them do that in the modern in the current ongoing continuity. They're not going to they're not going to go there like they did on Earth two, and they just scrubbed Earth two. You know, yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, and both Catwoman and Batman were already dead on Earth two anyway, even before they scrubbed it. But I think they did need to reset the board with Catwoman. But I'm just not. I'm not certain that this, as much as I enjoy this story, but just for her character, I think they could have either let her make that decision on her own or they could have just not acknowledged the the last few years of stories and, you know, and just just went on with her. You know, she shows back up and she's committing cat crimes or something. Right, you know? right. Yeah, having it be like brainwashed and everything and just sort of it feels kind of like a cheap way of undoing the history that they've got. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you want to gush about Alan Davis a little bit? Oh, let's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's one of my favorite comic artists. I mean, he really is. And uh, I just uh, the way the dynamic layouts he's got. I mean, they're very. There's nothing. There's nothing pretentious about his layouts. You don't notice them. Uh, he's very good at storytelling, uh, you know that, and I think you know even some of our favorite artists sometimes get a little pushy with their layouts. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah. okay, now you're just showing off. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, uh, you never feel that way with Davis's work. There's an energy to it, and I think one of the things that a lot of people fail to bring up with him, he draws some of the most expressive faces this side of Kevin McGuire. I oh, mean, yeah. you know. Yeah. He's got. I mean, just just throughout this issue, I mean, the the rage on Batman's face, the giant goofy grin he's got when he sees Rhonda, which again might be a bit much, uh, you know. And, and then the look of Robin when he's saying, you know, milk and things like. I mean, it's just it's. I, I just love that. But it, he he can sell an expression in a little tiny panel. I mean, with like very little detail, uh, like few others can. Yeah. And. Uh, you know, his Batman is definitely from the Neil Adams, Jim Aparo camp. Um, he's lean and muscular like an athlete. And, and normally, I honestly prefer my Batman a bit beefier, not like, you know, Frank Miller toward the end of the Dark Knight beefy, but or, you know, Ben Affleck beefy. But I, I make the exception for Davis because he just I mean, the way he moves is just it's very lyrical. You know, it's uh, the, the way his his body. I mean, he. Davis is a great grasp on anatomy and, uh, you know, it's, it's, he has people, I mean, yeah, there's some comic book. Yeah. There's things like, I know we said the Joker's way. I mean, the Joker is kind of ridiculously skinny, uh, and in this, in some panels and, uh, but overall, I mean, his anatomy is, you know, yeah, he's exaggerated a bit for the comic form, but it's not, it's based on real anatomy. He's not making up muscles and, and, uh, you know, and if you if you do that like Kirby and you come up with your basically your own anatomy, that's fine. But, uh, you know, some some, you know, this panel, the anatomy will look dead on in the next panel. Where the hell did that muscle come from? You know, right. So <laughs> and he's just his characters look like they're on model. They look like that's the way they're supposed to look. That's the way they've always supposed to look like. There's just like this sort of iconicness, which I don't think is a right version of that word. <laughs> but that it feels like a right for them. And it goes back to like when we were covering JLA The Nail, I remember looking at that and thinking, that hawk girl, 
I don't think I have ever seen a better looking Hawk girl, or she has never looked cooler than she does in that story. He nailed it perfectly. That splash page of the Atom in JLA the Nail, I don't think the Atom has ever looked cooler than that. And yeah. that's why I think, you know, I would have hated to have lost these stories, but damn, if he could have done an Aquaman miniseries, that thing would have looked fantastic. And yeah. I don't think we ever would have seen a better-looking Aquaman until a couple years ago when Ivan Reese started. Uh, well, right. I mean, I'm forgetting about, I mean, obviously the classic Jim Aparo did an amazing Aquaman, Ramona Fraden, you know, nothing but, like, within that era, like, from the 80s right. to 90s to the 2000s. Like, you know, he just, he gets the essence of these characters, and he makes them look so damn good. But they, But they also, like, he's not reinventing them. He's not changing them. He's just showing them finding their essence and 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 visualizing that and and that's why I again I, like, I don't know if anybody does a Robin better than Alan Davis. I really love his Robin, mm-hmm. and I'm trying yeah. to think now. Like I, at least this version, like the classic original costume, skinny legs and all. I mean, George Perez can make Dick Grayson look like an adult in that costume, but like in terms of like who else drew this type of robin with this much energy and and made it look this good i i don't know i short of dick sprang i can't think of anybody right right and <laughs> and between the two i think i prefer davis's davis's to sprang's i mean it's it's close but uh, right. yeah i think you're right i think there's 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 a there's a almost a Jose Luis Garcia Lopez praise, praise be his, his name, name <laughs> uh, level of style guide perfection yes. to to the characters. I mean, it's it's almost in a way like the like we always see the animated series distilled the characters down to their 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 core essence and mm-hmm. and in, in a way that worked in animation. Well, Davis has you know taken the the realism of of Adams and the slightly cartoony nature of a Dick Sprang Batman and merge them together, you know, and it's, uh, in all the characters and it, and it works, you know, and it's, uh, it, it just, it feels like, you know, this, you know, Davis, if DC wasn't really stupid and run him away, you know, they could have had him doing all sorts of style guide art, put him on JLA, you know, I mean, the fact that he spent most of his career, I mean, this is, this is nothing against his work at Marvel, which is fantastic, but, I'm at heart just more of a DC guy, right. so it it always it always saddens me that he didn't do more at DC, especially based on JLA the Nail, like we said. I mean, because I mean he pretty much covered almost every DC character in that in those two uh, miniseries at one time or another, and right. it, they all looked fantastic. So it's it's just I mean, you know, where was he for the you know, you know, I think he did the covers for the Genesis crossover, which is probably DC's worst crossover they ever did. But, <laughs> uh, you know, that's nothing against Davis, obviously. He had nothing to do with it. But where was Alan Davis on a big DC crossover? You know, I mean, why didn't somebody give that to him? You know, it's right. like, yeah, the, you know, take some a dump truck of money up to his house and and drop it off and let him, you know, you know, give him, you know, infinite crisis or something since nothing against Phil Jimenez, but he couldn't finish it, you know? And Davis apparently has no trouble making deadlines. (laughs) He gets his work done ahead of time. So he must've really liked drawing Captain Britain. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because, Because even still, when you're going to Marvel, okay, Excalibur, it's like a third, fourth tier X-Men book. Like, really? like yeah. you could be doing so much better. And, and I mean, he would. He would occasionally do the main X-Men book or, like I said, he did the Avengers in the early 2000s. But uh, still, could have been 
Oh, oh well. Yeah, it's in, and you know, we can't, I know we kind of mentioned it last time, but I think his Catwoman, as far as actual Batman artists who worked on a run of Batman, mm-hmm. uh, this is discounting Dave Stevens, who did the Who's Who entry for the Earth 2 Catwoman. Uh, I think he is perhaps the best artist to draw Catwoman, at least in her classic outfit or her, you know, her purple dress with the green cape. I mean, I, I don't think she ever looked better in that outfit in the actual Batman comics. I can't think of anybody that, that did it better. Now, you can argue, OK, Darwin Cook, you know, because he created the modern look of Catwoman. OK, I, I, I will never argue with you about Darwin Cook. But I, as far as the, uh, the, the that Catwoman in the Batman comics, I think, you know, I mean, good Lord, he made that that dress that which could have been like an evening gown from the 40s and look outdated. <laughs> He freaking sexed that thing up, but it still looks like the outfit. It you does. Know? Yeah. I, I'm th- no, no other name is jumping to mind uh, in terms of like that classic, you know, version of you know silver bronze age Catwoman. That classic look. I can't think of another artist that I think did better. Uh, yeah. No, I can't either. I mean, you know, you've got. I mean, you can make an argument for early Jim Ballant before he got totally ridiculous, but that's not the same outfit. You right. Know? I know. Well, that was actually the one I was like, oh, I, I, I've always had a soft spot for that uh, that Catwoman. <laughs> uh, you were you were at the right age. When I, I was. Out. I was at a very impressionable age when I saw that costume for the first time, and I'm like a uh, a Batman, like a like Masterworks cart trading card or something where. Like the the purple was colored in a way that almost looked flesh tone, and I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> anyway, different memory, different memory lane. We'll come, we'll come back to that one some other time. Yes, yes. Uh, well, have we have we sufficiently gushed over Alan Davis? I think. I think so. Well, I mean, for for one episode, we're going to come back to it again in uh, in a couple of weeks when he does what might be my favorite version of the Scarecrow. Like, yes. I'm trying to think of another version of the Scarecrow that I like better than his, and that's what we're going to see in the next Detective Comics cover that we, or comic that we uh, that we cover. So yes, yes, definitely. So why don't we uh, stop gushing there? We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about your listener feedback. Doom Patrol, 1963. Doom Patrol debut. My Greatest Adventure, issue 80. 1964. My Greatest Adventure renamed Doom Patrol. Issue 85. 1968. Doom Patrol destroyed. Issue 121. 1976. The new Doom Patrol. Showcase 94. 1987. Doom Patrol Volume 2. Berg Lytle. 1989. Morrison and Case. Issue 19. 1993 Pollack Issue 64 2001 Doom Patrol Volume 3 Arcudi Hewitt 2004 Doom Patrol Volume 4 Burn Shush 2009 Doom Patrol Volume 5 Giffen Clark 2012 2013 2014 2015? 2016? Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, because we're waiting. Available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Podbean.com. We're back. 
Nightcast Episode 6 received Twitter favorites and retweets from Almost Gotham, Andrew in Belfast, Ange at Dr. Ange70, Barry Reese, Bat at Shapirek, Batman at Batman Store, Brad Dade, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, DC in the 80s, Decca Black, Film and Water Podcast, Gabriel M. Cox, It's Plastic Man, Jared Albrecht, Jeffrey Brown, Jim Bow, Justice's First Dawn, Con L at Bazinga underscore Cal, KSC GSF Podcast, Laurel at Mountainflower One, Longbox Crusade, Matches Balone, Pod Dylan, President Lang, Robert Lewis, Rolled Spine Podcast, Siskoid, Stephen Bird, Terrence Castanguay, Treasury Comics, Trekker Talk, and Wesley Alves. Okay, since last episode we've received Facebook likes and shares from Aaron Moss, Abba Daba, Andrew Leyland, Billy LaCase, Brad Dade, Brian Craig, Chip Deese, Clinton Robinson, Cosmic Cat Comics, Daniel Doherty, Dave McElvinney, David Foster, Derek William Crabb, H. Daniel Reibold, Jacob Edwards, J. David Weeder, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Kal-El Commandy, Laura Phillips, Marcus Soros, Pat Sampson, Rob Kelly, Scott Cage, Scott Dunnan, The Irredeemable Shag, Siskoid, and Stephen Bird. We got a comment from Andy Leyland of Hey Kids Comics. He said, I bow before Chris and his Sean Connery impression. <laughs> Why, thank you, Andrew. It's quite nice for you to say such a thing to me. In fact, I'll read the rest of the listener feedback in this voice. Oh, no, I, no, I won't. I won't. <laughs> it's quite good, though. Yeah. Thanks. Aaron Moss from the Headcast Network said, Ryan was saying he likes the idea of someone stealing the Batmobile as it's something that shouldn't happen. I wonder how he feels about someone stealing the tires from the Batmobile. I guess we'll find out in about half a dozen months or so. <laughs> yes, we will. <laughs> um, I will. I will preview my thoughts on that as the idea of someone stealing the Batmobile from the Batcave has just the right level of WTF-ness. Like, like that, how does that happen? And makes it a little bit more charming. The idea of somebody boosting the tires in a back alley... Mm, uh, we'll see. <laughs> um, Daniel Doherty said, I get that Max Allen Collins' run is divisive among fans. I still have a soft spot for 402 and 403 for being among the first comics I ever read as a kid. And that's, I mean, we, we all go through that. We all have soft spots for things that we read at at just the right age, even when looking back on them with age and time, maybe they're not as good as they, as we remember them, but yeah, it happens. Yeah. And you know, he more than likely got those in that three pack, that, that omnipresent three pack that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that everybody seemed to have. Yeah. Um, Although I okay, think, I think Dan okay. said like, maybe those were like his second and third comics that he got. And his, the first one he got was untold legend of the Batman issue two. Oh, okay. Uh, so if that, if that was the case, you know, that's a, cool one to start with oh yeah, yeah yeah okay let's move on to the comments posted at the fire and water network which you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com as always if you leave a comment on the website we'll be sure to address it in some way though we might only read part of the message on the episode for the sake of expediency and because we gushed about alan davis too much <laughs> before, yeah, we're running, addressing, we're long. <laughs> <laughs> before addressing the comments from the last episode we got a late comment on nightcast episode five that was where we discussed Detective Comics number 569, the first issue by the Bar Davis team. Uh, the late comment came from our friend, the Irredeemable Shag, who said, Another excellent episode. So glad to hear you tackling issues you loved. Not a lot to say from me, because, you know, I'm over my Batman phase. <laughs> 
But now that I'm reading Batman and the Outsiders and loving it, I might enjoy these Mike W. Barr detective issues. Never read them, so I might have to get a reprint. Yes, I think you should. Yes, definitely. Uh, he Shag said, also, I found the Holy Gutenberg line pretty funny. Batman's response was obviously a reaction to the old show, but Robin's line makes sense. The Gutenberg Bible would be a holy relic, so it works on multiple levels. Ha. Uh, okay, Shag, you can, you can have that one. Yeah, that's, that was pretty good. Uh, um, uh, just as I mentioned, he, Shag has said before that he's been reading Batman and the Outsiders in the Showcase Presents version, the old black and white one. They just, this week as we're recording this, they just released a hardcover version of Batman and the Outsiders Volume 1. It collects their first kind of preview story from the Brave and the Bold 200, the first 12 issues of the series, and one other comic. I think maybe they had a team up with somebody, maybe Teen Titans or something like that. Mm, I, I yeah. don't remember what it was, but uh, yeah, there's, there's a hardcover version of Batman and the Outsiders available now, so you can see Barr and uh, Jim Aparo in full color glory as the Outsiders. And, yeah, cool. That's that's uh, that. I, I might have to check that out. I've got most of the early issues of Batman and the Outsiders, but it was you know spotty newsstand distribution, so I don't have all of them. So, uh, but I think it was probably that Teen Titans crossover. I bet that that's a great story, by the way. So I think, you know, I kind of wonder, maybe we should have just called this Batman, our Batman phase. Maybe that's what <laughs> we should have called this. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay, now we're moving on to the comments from the last episode where we talked about Batman no- number 403. And I think you need to address this one, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, there was a common feeling on the episode about the Vicky Vale sound clip that I used. Um, one of the prevailing ones was that it was overdone and a lot of people were polite and said well that was interesting i'm glad you're only doing it for the one episode um (laughs) (laughs) which and 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 gutierrez who had that idea and he messaged me he's like so maybe that wasn't a very good idea on my part and i i'm letting him off the hook because what he basically said was could you do that as he never said i had to use it every single time we said vicky vale i chose to do that um and i i'm sure i went overboard and maybe i did it on purpose to sort of self-sabotage myself, thinking that if I did it too much this time, no one would ever ask me to do something like that again in the future. <laughs> because, you know, having having done a podcast where I had to include a lightning bolt every time someone said the word Shazam for like 55 episodes, it, it is fun and it's a, a joy and it's a nice little gift to the audience, but it can get old. <laughs> it can get hard to remember that at the last minute. So. Well, just just to sabotage you some more, I'm going to say the whip. Oh, son of a... <laughs> <sighs> All right, well... <laughs> Let's get There's on a little to... bit of extra editing for you. <laughs> Moving on. Our first comment from the last episode came from Joe X, who pointed out that the cover to The Dark Knight Returns with Batman Behind the City was the Warner Books edition. And he also said, Dark Knight Returns, Watchmen, and Saga of the Swamp Thing were the foundation for DC's trade business and released with different covers from the Warner editions. I actually looked that up right after we had recorded that. I was like, what? Because I remember we had that discussion. I was like, what version am I thinking of it if it wasn't a second printing? And I did 
did look it up and see that, oh, that was a Warner edition, which makes sense because my brother would have gotten that book not at a comic store, but probably at like a Warner Brothers store or on a shelf in, in some other store. So yeah, yeah that, that made What's really sense. weird is I got mine from a comic store, and it was the Warner edition, which oh, is right. weird. Okay. So maybe they, maybe they ordered some extra copies from a different distributor or something. I don't know. Huh, okay. Joe X, back to his comments. Uh, he said Clint, because that came up in like what was being published uh, during the same month. He said Clint was a spinoff from the adolescent radioactive Black Belt Hamsters, itself a parody of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which again parodied Frank Miller. There were hundreds of those three adjectives in an animal parody comics. I remember those well. Most mm-hmm. of which never had more than a slightly clever title. Some later, adolescent radioactive Black Belt Hamsters issues featured art by pre-Sandman Sam Keith and Ty Templeton, although not together. Mm, that'd be uh, an interesting combo. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> um, and one of his other comments he mentioned, very Dick Tracy with the record company bad guy named Spindle. I didn't even ah. catch that, but no, that's a good point. So. I, hadn't, I hadn't even thought of that, so yeah. yeah. Uh, good call. Dial C for comment said... I feel this would have been a good episode for the animated series if they had adapted it. The themes feel really right up there, and I can imagine it being called Karma as the title. I actually like Arkham in the outskirts of Gotham. There's a sense the city wants to forget about them, but they keep getting out. It could also tie in the haunted house element that Morrison brought as an eerie place that no one is really sure if there is some dark force there. Also, I could see the reason the villains keep getting out is the city doesn't want to spend a lot of money on it, and it's constantly needing to be updated. So even if they get money from donations like Bruce Wayne, it wouldn't be enough to keep the villains from escaping. Well, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob Kelly, our buddy from many, many shows here on the Fire and Water Network, said, Killer Sean Connery impression, Earth to Chris. So. <laughs> well, thank you, Rob. It's quite nice of you to say that as well. <laughs> <laughs> Rob said, story-wise, why the hell does Batman not invest in a remote kill switch for the Batmobile? <laughs> was that a thing in 1987? Like, I, don't, I don't know. For, for Batman, it could be. For Batman, it probably would have been. Um, anyway, uh, he said, also, I wonder what the property values are around Arkham Asylum. I assume rock bottom because the minute someone breaks out, they leave a trail of bodies. You try and staff a blockbuster franchise in Gotham when the Killer Moth or Croc are killing your part-timers every other week. <laughs> Maybe I kind of buy that Arkham Asylum touches Wayne Manor. Bruce probably bought up thousands of acres for pennies on the dollar. Uh, and Rob later asked, how has there never been a supervillain called the Karma Chameleon? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, good. I have to address, now I have this scene of a blockbuster video store <laughs> where the, the, you know, the guy walks, one of the workers walks in, asks the manager, Where's Billy? He hasn't been here for a couple of days. Oh, yeah, the calendar man killed him last week. <laughs> oh, man. Damn, I let him borrow my copy of Basic Instinct. What the hell? <laughs> uh, uh, Karma Chameleon, that was my idea. And I remember I texted you and said, hey, how about using Karma Chameleon? And you're like, why? <laughs> and I said, Tommy Karma, and he dresses as Batman. You're like, oh, okay. So if you didn't like that song at the end, that's my fault, not not Ryan's. <laughs> yeah, I had a, like a car sound in my but like, yeah, and it was one of those things where I was just like, "What the hell does that song have to do?" And then once you said, that, I was like, "Oh yeah, no, no, it works. I don't. Yeah, it's fine." So I, no, I had no problem. I liked it. So. Our buddy David A. Gutierrez asked us a couple of general questions. As readers, is the layout of Gotham important to you? Are you fans of the no man's land approach where it was all spelled out, or do you prefer things to be wherever they serve the story best? For Franklin, because he's old school, were you a fan of the Metropolis is the city by day, Gotham is the city by night thing? 
Uh, well, I'll go ahead and answer. Um, I do like I do like when the city has like I'm a big fan of Starman, so mm-hmm. I love what what uh, Robinson did with Opal City. I mean, if there were areas of Opal City they referenced over and over, you actually got an idea of how the city was laid out. Yep. Gotham, we've seen different maps over the years. Uh, people. Uh, writers sometimes they'll, they'll they'll use them for a bit and then they'll ignore them and then there'll be another uh, you know another section. I mean, even if you go by the Nolan movies, you had the Narrows in Batman Begins, which was conveniently forgotten about in every other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, never came back to that. Yeah, <laughs> Nolan movie. Um, so I, you know, I kind of I like places like McSurley's and uh, you know locales. I don't really need to know where they are on a map. You know, that's that's kind of my my feeling i i like to have a little bit more freedom but i do like to have different areas where you know if they like the animated series had the like certain villain hangouts they'd go back to and things i I like that you know but uh, overall uh and as far as the city by day metropolis is city by day gotham is city by night yeah i i like that pretty well and that was actually hammered home pretty well in the world's finest miniseries that dave gibbons and steve rude did Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really liked uh, that aspect of it. I the funny thing is I I do kind of like it when places have like sort of like maps and I have a definite orientation of something like that, especially when it's a a location sort of as prevalent or something like Gotham City. But I've never really put the two of them together, and I think it's maybe just because there are so many different eras for Batman and like it, like time periods where just the tone and the feel uh, of of this approach to the character is a little bit different that I always kind of feel like Gotham is sort of rewritten every decade and sort of like reconceptualized by the artists mm-hmm. and that sort of like in a weird dark city way kind of like strips down one neighborhood and like builds up like a new one or something like the real sort of impoverished ghetto area has kind of like a different slum neighborhood name or something like that. I, I guess like the the map the the finite idea of of the orientation of the geography of Gotham has never been as important to me, but I do like the idea that there is there is a sense of realness to this. Like I, I don't need to know exactly where everything is, but I like knowing that there are these little pockets. There are like there's a more richer sort of affluent neighborhood. There are like the real deep slums. There's the area by the you know by the wharf, by the the ocean or the river. You know, you've got mm-hmm. the outskirts and wherever Arkham is located. You've got a place like a McSurley's. There, there is a, a you know a, a neighborhood like a, a driving path you can get to sort of these places. Even if I don't know it, I feel like Gotham has been developed enough that somebody out there would know that, and I, I don't know somehow that's that's enough for me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, He also asks, who is your favorite Bruce Wayne? The dandy fop, the publicly sort of absent-minded guy who surprises everyone in the Wayne boardroom with moments of brilliant clarity? The BBS one? Keaton's? Um, You know, that's a good question. And I'm going to kind of cheat and steal Ryan's answer a bit because it's it's according to the era Mm -hmm. uh, that that you're in. I mean, honestly, I, I did kind of like the way they portrayed uh, Bruce Wayne in uh, Batman Begins to bring up Batman Begins again, because you had, you know, he he really come across as the the fop and and and, and a prick, really. I mean, when he kicks everybody out of his his yeah. party, of course, he's trying to save everybody, but right. but then at the end, he comes in and swoops in and takes the company back, you know. Yeah. So I kind of like that, you know. 
the kind of multifaceted Bruce Wayne that you know that people can he can play the uh, the playboy that doesn't give a care about anything, but he also you know supports an orphanage or he's he's he has lofty you know goals to to help the city or the environment or something. And then when you know when somebody asks him about it, he can say, oh, it's a tax dodge, you know, or you know, or or something like that. I can write it off on my taxes and. And then they look at him like, oh, you know, but still he's getting the PR. I kind of like the multifaceted version of the fake Bruce Wayne. So people really don't know what to expect from him. Uh, I I like the way Keaton portrayed him as a very distracted, almost recluse type that honestly people at his own party didn't recognize him. You know, Uh. (laughs) I like that, too. Like that that had always sort of been my default. I like that, you know, people. Yeah, like the Bruce Wayne who could walk down the street, like go to Crime Alley. And he's like, it's actually a big deal that Vicky is following him. Nobody else is like pointing out. It's like, hey, that's Bruce Wayne. That's the billionaire. Let's go like follow, like get his picture and everything. But that's also a factor of the era. That type of Bruce Wayne, I don't think you could do that today. Um, I, and I think actually, like the, the the Nolan film sort of reflected that. Like it would be a bigger deal that nobody sees him, that nobody takes his picture because they try to and everything like that. And he would have to work harder to conceal his identity because we're in an era where everybody has a camera with them right. all the time. Yeah. So as much as I like the way Michael Keaton played that slightly reclusive, slightly oddball one. Today, like in, in a modern era, you might need more of the Christian Bale one who distracts people by acting like a drunken idiot and, and acting like an ass and kicking them out of kicking you out of his house. That might be the distraction that it needs because ultimately, whoever Bruce Wayne is, I think you have to look at him and say, not in a million years could that be Batman. Right. Because if you don't think that, he's failing to one degree or another. Yeah. So, yeah, he's either got to be like just slightly – uh, like out of it or like, like reclusive or he's got to just be a, a, a brilliant actor who is portraying this you know drunken playboy so like in the dark night when he's he you know crashes his sports car yeah, to stop yeah. the guy and, and then you know and he does a very batman like thing but instantly goes into oh you know i had no idea what i was doing you know yeah, i mean yeah, that, exactly. it's, that's perfect yeah okay well i think we answered that one pretty well okay Paul Hicks from the Doom Patrol podcast, Waiting for Doom, said, The Demon miniseries by Matt Wagner is the menu item that sounds like a perfect blend of delicious ingredients, but ends up being nearly completely inedible, leading to you throwing it at the subway tile wall behind the chef and then getting banned from the restaurant until new owners take over. That seems like a personal thing that Paul has had before. (laughs) I was following him along until at one point I was just like, um, I don't think we're talking about the same thing anymore, Paul. <laughs> um, but he goes on to say, it stays in my collection because it explains how Harry ended up in hell, which is a big part of the Alan Grant ongoing setup. Oh, I'm sorry. I mistook this for the Hellcast, as you were. <laughs> <laughs> is there a Hellcast? <laughs> oh, it could be. I, I thought, now. <laughs> yeah, I thought about doing some demon stuff on Midnight the Podcasting Hour. I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to. I thought about doing some demons, like covering that miniseries on Fire and Water Presents. But there are other demon stories I would rather get to if I had to, so who knows if I'll ever talk about those. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, Max Allen Collins really didn't think much of Batmobile security, did he? First he has the thing taken for a joyride by a nutter, then he has the tires nicked. <laughs> ah, I love it. I love I cannot the slang. Wait. I do. I love, I love the slang. That's, that's, I love getting getting new slang. You know, it's a, Andrew, Andrew Leyland has me calling people numpties, you know, so – 
Uh, he's a numpty. I cannot wait until we get past these issues. They're street level, and then there's about as interesting as something very dull indeed. <laughs> Batman without any of the fantastical elements is pointless. See the Nolan films. Or not, I couldn't get past the first bore fest. <laughs> Canal TV shows had a certain bearability when starring a charmer like James Garner, but I don't want mundanity in my superhero comics. Well, you know, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get it. That's, yeah. You got plenty of superhero type action in this one, so yeah. Uh, Siskoid said Gotham's tectonic plates keep shifting, and it's possible Arkham Asylum moved close to the manor once. That's what happens when you build a city over an abyss. I should know I live in a city built on a swamp, like New Orleans. It's sinking, and I don't want to swim. <laughs> well, we do know that the, the, the giant cataclysm earthquake happens That's true. in the post-crisis continuity. So there you go. That's true. Diablo Frank from DC Bloodlines, Diana Prince, Wonder Woman, and the Rolled Spine Podcast Network said, out of my three-pack, there's the three-pack again, yep. I, I remember preferring the art on number 402, but the story in number 403. It struck me as odd that Collins would pick up the false Batman thread so quickly, but given my difficulty in acquiring all the parts of multi-chapter stories, I was glad to grab both tales in one package. I like the journey through the what's-his-face's madness. Vale's criticism of Batman to Bruce's face and the poignant ending. Dennis Cowan did solid work here, and I wonder if this wasn't ultimately his audition for the question. Hmm. I like the cover better than number 401, at least. Yeah, that's a good point. This could have been his you know, work with Denny O'Neill uh, audition for the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Frank continues, Rob's praise of Alan Davis on Detective reminds me of how much I would have preferred him on the second Aquaman miniseries instead. I guess Batman kind of needed Davis in 1986, but I feel Aquaman would have benefited from the same very brief run, and year two with McFarlane was just around the corner anyway. And, you know, like we said, I kind of as much as I love Davis on Detective, I well, we could have still had him on Detective, but we would have lost him on Batman and the Outsiders, I guess. So. Right. But, uh, yeah, Aquaman could have definitely benefited from a little Alan Davis injection in the 80s. (laughs) I mean, like like you said, he had sort of been working ahead. And at one point, like he was doing these issues and issues of Uncanny X-Men were coming out the same month. So if he had had like the schedule or whatever, if he could have been able to do both, that would have been amazing. Cause then we mm-hmm. wouldn't have had to lose either one, but, uh, no, yeah, yeah, I get it. Uh, Mark Baker Wright said, I have to confess that Jason Todd's early years are a significant gap in my DC knowledge. The fact that he originally had a distinctive costume is news to me. Would you be able to point me to an image? And then Chris put up on the website an image of Jason Todd's original costume that Don Newton had uh, designed. So that was asked and answered and still love that. And by the way, I hope it is still coming out because I pre-ordered it on Amazon. But there should be a Tales of the Batman by Jerry Conway hardcover collection coming in July. And Ooh. it collects like his, his early work on Batman, including the first issues of Killer Croc and Robin. So Ooh. it should be coming out. I think, I think the list price is going to be something like $50 or close to that. Uh, I pre-ordered it a while ago, so I got it for about half that, hopefully. But yeah, if and when that comes out in July, check that out, especially if you've never seen early Jason Todd stories. It's a great collection to look for. So. Yes, I, I'll be all over I, Well, I'll say I'll be all over that, but I think I pretty much got all of them, yeah, and I'm yeah, cheap. Really? <laughs> I, I still might get it anyway. <laughs> I think they're also all available digitally on Comixology, too. So There you go. Lewis said, happy to see the nod to Uncanny X-Men number 213, a childhood eye-opener to the X-Men. Davis and Neary present possibly the best Wolverine Sabretooth skirmish. I'm all right with the ease in which Tommy procured a genuine Batsuit because I'm not a big fan of Batman donning a cape and cowl over his Iron Man suit. 
I remember the blue-gray oval Batman being more blue-collar. Instead of sticking his costume in a fancy hyperbaric chamber to submerge until needed, Bruce had spare uniforms ready for whenever it was time to work. After the Batmobile, he was probably more upset about the loss of a utility belt. Well, that's that's a good that's a good point. I mean, yeah, we didn't really think about that. Utility belts got a lot of stuff in it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it does. I mean, that's that's like a cop losing his gun. That's a really really big deal. Yes, um, it definitely is. Yes. Yeah, uh, there's a couple parts of that, and I forgot to mention this when we were actually talking about the story, but it, it felt like a bigger deal that he was stealing the Batmobile, and I didn't really think about the fact that he had a genuine Batman costume that he took from Batman's wardrobe in the second story, and I don't think it really like pinged on my radar because his costume in the first story looked identical to Batman's which supposedly, at least it was implied, he stole from a costume shop. Mm-hmm. So I guess like if the costumes can make you know, a, a costume that is a one-to-one replica of the genuine article, it's not really a big deal if he steals a costume from the actual Batcave. It was more of a big deal. So I, that, that's something that, you know, looking back, maybe Starlin or somebody could have, done, could have tweaked the art in that one to reflect the fact that it wasn't the actual Batman costume, but... Right, you know, whenever Spider-Man would have to, on several occasions, wear a costume shop version of his costume, it right. would, you know, have Spider-Man written on the back of the spider or on the back, or right. <laughs> or it wouldn't fit right, and, you know, yeah, they could have done something like that. Yeah, that's that's true, but, and, and that was in the days before, although Miller had shown he had a tart, he had some kind of bulletproof uh, material under his oval uh-huh. on his chest, you know, we haven't gotten to the fact that it's made of Kevlar and right. Nomax and, and all that stuff yet. Because nobody knew what Kevlar was at the time. <laughs> right, exactly. But yeah, as for the other things, I think the the costume being in like this chamber or whatever, I think that is a necessity of the movies because of the way the costumes in the movies were built. And then the comics sort of adapting that type of hyper-realistic armored type of plating. And uh, I get it, but I like the old costume of just like the fabric or cloth blue and gray because it seems more like a superhero costume. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what's kind of made it a little bit more special. Right. Uh, Lucian Desar said, in regards to Bruce Wayne taking Vicky out for dinner at 3 a.m., perhaps Mr. Wayne arranged the restaurant to remain open longer since <laughs> Vicky had to work late. One of their mutual relationship similarities is that they both work late hours. I think that is a good no prize. Well, it works for me. <laughs> uh you guys can think that is a good no prize <laughs> if you want. Uh, I, I don't. <laughs> I think it's a mistake. And I'm going to stick with that, but you, you can accept it if you want. Well, you know, I, I, we keep bringing up Batman Begins, but I keep referencing Bruce Wayne. But he did basically buy a restaurant so his girlfriends could swim in the <laughs> little pond there. So, you know, I think he could, like, pay a guy to keep it open, you know. So True. I can buy that. Yeah. True. That is all for our comments on the website, but before we go, we got another iTunes review since the last one. Uh, This is from Angus McCracken, and I'm pretty sure that's actually Pat Sampson from the Longbox Crusade, uh, who's been doing a lot of episodes covering classic Star Wars comics with Jared Alberich, the yard sale artist. Check out those Mm. guys. Um, Anyway, Pat or Angus, uh, his review is titled, Doing a Happy Bat Dance. And he writes, Have you ever danced with a podcast in the pale moonlight? You will want to, listening to the excellent podcast that is covering the post-crisis Batman issues. Great podcast with two excellent hosts that know their Batman knowledge. I look forward to each episode's release. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you very much, Angus and or Pat. 
Yes, thank you. And I love the the 89 movie references there. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> now, somebody else, you can use, want to get nuts, let's get nuts. Go do that. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that is all the feedback that we got from the last couple of episodes. Again, thank you very much for supporting us on Twitter. Thank you very much for supporting us on Facebook, writing your comments on the website, leaving iTunes reviews. We love all of this. It helps more people find the show and it gives us tons of encouragement, which we need because we don't find a lot of fulfillment in our lives. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Validate me. Validate me. <laughs> Uh, anything else before we go? Uh, I think we pretty much covered it all. What are we covering next time? Uh, it's it's a I think it's pretty much a forgotten issue of Batman and a forgotten storyline that nobody ever heard of ever again. I think. Yeah, Batman four hundred four four hundred four. That sounds like it's just lost in the middle of something. Nothing nothing exciting about that. But, uh, nah, nah. <laughs> all right, come back in a couple weeks for a story by Mr. Miller and Mr. Mazzuccelli. Something tells me you're gonna like it. Yes. Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at SupermatesPod or email me at supermatespodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Oh.